This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Columbia Bank and Tacoma Creates. Hello and welcome to Tacoma Arts Live podcast series on our theater program where we dive into the production and the social positioning of each upcoming play. My name is David Fisher. I'm executive director at Tacoma Arts Live. I use he, him pronouns. And today I'm dressed in a red plaid uh, shirt. I have a baseball cap and I'm wearing a mask today because I'm just slightly under the weather and I don't want to get our performers sick. Um, Today's episode is Baldwin versus Buckley, a debate. It will be uh, shared with the public at the Washington State History Museum and their theater on February 23rd, 24th, uh, 25th, and 26th. And today I'm joined by performers Eric Clausel and Michael O'Hara, two very good friends who I've worked with for years and I'm excited to see them uh, working together again. And uh, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Tacoma Creates and the Washington State History Museum. We also want to acknowledge that Tacoma Arts Live respectfully recognizes that we gather on the traditional lands of the Puyallup people, and we pay our respects to elders both past and present. Well, after more than 20 productions since 2009, the Tacoma Arts Live trustees authorized a permanent expansion to produce live theater at a professional level. Our vision is to share the curatorial leadership among Pacific Northwest professionals and produce plays that engage empathy, spark community conversations, broaden understanding, bring joy, challenge, laughter, and catharsis, and recognize that it is a, a key program for involving more community in our free ticketing program that is funded in part by Tacoma Creates. So this project is a restaging of the historic debate from February 18, 1965, when an overflow crowd packed the Cambridge Union in Cambridge, England, to bear witness to a historic televised debate between the author, James Baldwin, the leading literary voice of the civil rights movement in the United States, and William F. Buckley, a fierce critic of the movement and America's most conservative intellectual. You may remember William F. Buckley from Firing Line and other programs. The question of the debate and the topic was, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. That was the debate topic in 1965. And through this process, we're asking today, how is that relevant? What's changed? What hasn't? And our whole goal with presenting this reenactment is uh, to give the audience an opportunity to look at this time capsule and consider those issues. It's such a pleasure to have you two 
uh, join us. And um, Eric, it's great to have you back working with us. You've been an integral partner to our theater program. And uh, as far back as Ain't Misbehavin', and also uh, starring in Thurgood, which has a resonance to uh, this show, um, not only uh, thematically and uh, as a leadership voice that you're representing, either uh, Thurgood Marshall or James Baldwin, um, but also, I hate to mention, with the line load of memorizing this incredible piece here. You've got uh, a PhD in clinical psychology, and uh, I know you work professionally in that field here locally. You've worked for us. You've worked for Tacoma Little Theater. I think you've worked for uh, Tacoma Musical Playhouse as well. And uh, you come from uh, a deep experience professionally working in the professional theater uh, in New York and nationally. So it is uh, great to have you engaged with us again. So welcome. Great, it's great to be here. What do you want to tell us? What can you tell us about your background and uh, some of the fun things that you've experienced and maybe help make some connections about why this work uh, is interesting to you? Okay, so I am um, identify as um, African-American. My mom is from Charleston, South Carolina. My dad is Puerto Rican um, and uh, second-generation Puerto Rican. My family made the great migrations from the South and from Puerto Rico. And um, as a kid growing up in New York City, um, I was uh, born in the South Bronx, uh, raised in Harlem. Um, coincidentally, uh, my younger brother was born in Harlem Hospital, the same hospital as James Baldwin was born in. Um, and so I, as a young person, had a keen awareness because I grew up biculturally of, of differences. Um, and so I noticed as a kid, as a young kid, that things were different for different people. I remember my parents listened to the news a lot, and um, it was the 60s, and I could hear the strife on the radio, and it just didn't make sense to me. And uh, talking, I was hearing a lot about Black struggle. Um, and so it always resonated that something was different about African Americans um, compared to whites that always stuck with me. Yeah. Um, and, and James Baldwin, I didn't learn about James Baldwin until I got into grad school. Um, I went to a community, um, a clinical community program where sort of one of the pillars is social justice. And that's where I was really exposed to James Baldwin for the first time and saw the debates. And um, as, of, as now, when I saw the debate, I thought, wow, it's so prescient. So now what he's saying in 1965, and I still feel the same way today. So to be able mm -hmm. to speak those words and bring them to life is is really um, an honor. Baldwin has a, I think, somewhat unique voice in advancing civil rights in that he is such an amazing intellectual and he also speaks with his full heart, full-throated passion and because of his capacity as a writer and his immense intellectual prowess, I don't think I know of anybody else who has focused language as clearly and as sharply as James Baldwin, even maybe today. 
Yeah, I mean, his, the, his use of language um, and the depth of his uh, thinking um, is, yeah, you're right. It's just, it's unparalleled. Um, his, his, um, his fiction and his essays, um, they come from a deep well. That's the only way I can s- describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think it was Mart- uh, Malcolm X called Mal- um, James Baldwin the poet of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I yeah. think so. That's right. Maybe taking the baton uh, from Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Well, that's great. Um, you have done a few projects with us that some of which have had some through lines um, from Ain't Misbehaving to Thurgood to this show. You also uh, assistant directed Grounded um, and uh, you did art uh, with us as well. So you've really been involved in a lot of different projects. Do you see, are we just crazy or do you see a through line at all for the work that we're doing and um, and maybe your involvement and why you enjoy working at Tacoma Arts Live. Well, I think what Tacoma Arts Live is endeavoring to do and doing quite well is sort of doing theater and um, theatrical productions that speak to a variety of voices and a variety times in history. Um, and I think that's powerful and it's evident in the, in the play selection and the productions that Tacoma Arts Live has done over the years. That's uh, gracious of you. Thank you. And, you know, you also see the sausage making as we're trying to figure out the best road forward. And you are involved now in our advisory council. And uh, uh, I'm just grateful to have you as a partner and a friend. So thank you for all your good work. It's been a joy. Speaking of partners and friends, uh, Michael O'Hara, you uh, have been a part of this theater community up and down the I-5 corridor for more than 35 years. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I have been working together for 28 or 29 of those Most of those years, years. yes. Yes. With some gaps here and there, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think of you as one of the joyful theater warriors here in our region. You have um, thrown your whole self into project after project after project. And I love, too, that you... um, have moved up and down the I-5 corridor to share your talent with so many different uh, organizations and uh, really making a difference. So, what, what keeps you in the work? I would say what keeps me in the work is one of the projects ahead of you that you can always have an opportunity to express through theater, whether it's a play or a musical, uh, to voice the topics of the play or musical, to express it to the audience, to try to get some kind of reaction, some kind of involvement from the audience so that it becomes personal. And such as this piece, it really gives the opportunity for us to hopefully engage an audience to open their minds, to have some dialogue. Uh, The very thing that we're going to be talking about today is what are those topics that are still relevant today? the topics that have maybe passed others by generationally, but what have we really to focus on? So I use theater 
not only on stage, but also backstage to try to bring those awarenesses to our public, to our communities, open some minds, expand some minds, and hopefully educate. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the early projects I think that we worked on was of the icing. Was that, were you in that? That was my first show at Tacoma Little Theater oh when you were God. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yep. It was a long time ago. Um, but, you know, I loved that show, and I, I chose that show because one, it won a Pulitzer Prize, so that didn't hurt. But um, it's Gershwin <laughs> right. Brothers, and um, it's, uh, it's a hard piece because it, it is filled with irony and sarcasm, uh, but it gets to the root of some of uh, the political stupidity that we endured in 1931 when that was written mm -hmm. <laughs> and continue to endure today. So, And I, you I chose just, it at a time when it was a president <clears throat> election year. It was, so. right. I want to say that was 94, 96, right around That's in there early, somewhere. Yeah. I, don't even, I think it was about 96 probably, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we went on to work on another project, which I know was just very central to our hearts, and that was Love Letters mm -hmm. uh, by A.R. Gurney with music, with your dear bride, correct, Sherry O'Hare. And uh, we did that for, I don't know, a year or more in I various I would say settings. at least two yeah. years, two yeah, years yeah, that yeah. we did it at different venues. Uh, and we didn't always do it with music. I think the first time we did perform right. it was just the just straight the script. straight show, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we inserted music here and there, which... Um, was a good experience, and we're not going to uh, <laughs> dwell that on that. Much. But um, I wanted to tell this very quick story because it, it still makes me laugh today. We were um, rehearsing in a variety of venues, and we were performing at one point at the top of the Washington building, mm -hmm. which had a former uh, club in it that was, uh, and we were doing a dinner uh, theater program, I think for Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't have a piano. So we had to get the piano from uh, the Pantages rehearsal hall uh, down the hill along 11th Street and across Pacific Avenue into the elevator and up there. Having, of course, great faith that it would remain in tune that whole way. Of course, we didn't have a truck because we were poor and stupid. So we are, you know, right out of Laurel and Hardy, moving this piano <laughs> down this extremely steep hill. Nobody gets hurt. Miracle of miracles. Mm -hmm. And then roll it into the building, put it into the elevator, and uh, go up uh, to the top to floor. The top. Only to stop at about maybe two or three floors before we're our destination to meet the building owner who lost his mind with us because that elevator was not the freight elevator and should not have be holding a piano. These are the poor and stupid things that uh, I can confess now to 20-some uh, years uh, later. So we survived that. And, we did and you know what? That. We didn't have to retune the piano, and it was actually... Correct. It, 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 it held, held pretty itself. well. I know. That's nuts. <laughs> Michael, you have uh, been on the board of Tacoma Little Theater for many years. Mm -hmm. um, I was the previous executive director back during the Eisenhower administration, and <laughs> you've been helping uh, lead uh, that from a governance and board level. And Eric, have you been on that he board? He is on the, well? currently on the board, board, on the board now mm -hmm. as well. So 
Um, I love Tacoma Little Theater. It is um, a gem in this community, and I think their current executive director is extremely talented and smart, Chris Surface, and he's been a great uh, partner and collaborator. So, um, how's it? How have you uh, found being at a governance level on the Tacoma Little Theater board? During these times right now, it has been challenging because we are dealing with topics that haven't really been delved into mm -hmm. before in this kind of light. And so we are really challenged to make sure we do uh, the work properly, respectfully, and hopefully accomplish what theaters have not dealt with for generations, right? So with Eric, and we have a very diverse board and a very educated board in respects of this topic of DEI and, and equality and inclusion. And so it really is a great task at hand to make sure that the current theater is thinking of these topics, working towards solutions that can be um, held for the next generations, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, you are a founding member of Rise Up, mm -hmm. which is a theater coalition that uh, focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, mm -hmm. and the confrontation of uh, uh, structural racism that has been present in American theater. And um, some of that work is what Michael's talking about. And mm -hmm. um, how do you feel the country, the field, and maybe Tacoma uh, is doing in making progress on that journey. I say journey because we're never going to arrive, mm -hmm. but we have to be in process. We have to be um, uh, challenging ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, in the arts, in the performing arts world, um, the George Floyd moment and the aftermath of that really galvanize the theater communities around the country in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, et cetera, um, to sort of rethink, like Michael was saying, rethink the way we've been doing theater traditionally, whose voices were not at the table, who, were, who was not part of the decision making. Um, and I think that theaters have, have really done a nice job with continuing to move that work forward. Like Michael said, it's not easy work. Um, and I really feel like here in Tacoma, people are making, have made a, an earnest effort um, to try to move the work forward here. Um, you think about Tacoma Little Theater as an organization that's been around for over 100 years now. Um, and to sort of to shift the tide for an organization that's been around for that long. And um, it's not it's not an easy process. It's not a quick process. But I think people are really earnest about making the shifts that are necessary so that everybody feels, not everyone, but people feel like it's a place that's an inclusive place yeah. um, and that diverse voices are represented in all levels of the organization. You both can speak to this, that one of the criticisms that Tacoma Arts Live has had is that so many of the plays that we've done have been heavy dramas. <laughs> and... You know, we've we've taken those stories on for a reason. They are powerful, important stories to tell mm -hmm. as we are trying to make progress mm -hmm. on um, inclusion, et cetera. Um, we're hoping uh, to be able to 
continue on the journey that we're on, but also bring some comedy to it. We have a show that we'll be announcing soon for next season that I think is making progress uh, on that. But how do you feel about that? I mean, I think, you know, wh where's the material and, and how do we all navigate uh, through finding the right stories that get us to continue to advance the ideas and open people's hearts and minds? That's a challenge because we've never really looked before, right? Mm -hmm. So now we really need to find the authors, the playwrights, the people that are challenging these topics that we've never really looked for before because we could go to the old chestnuts. We could do the comedies, the Neil Simons that have been around forever. Right. But now it really is an opportunity for us to find those new voices, whether they're brand new or voices of 20 years ago, the Baldwin era of voices. There are stories there as well that yeah. this debate is a great opportunity to kind of see where we were, where we're going, and how to move forward. So as Tacoma Arts Lives picks their seasons, it's important to find those stories within those authors that will challenge those storylines. Mm -hmm. yeah. And along those lines too is the, um, the challenge for bringing in um, diverse audiences that may not have felt like these theater companies and the productions that they were doing for decades um, represented them or they saw themselves on in any of the stories. So it's a process of um, the, the organizations making an internal shift and also reaching back to the community to sort of let the community know the ways in which the effort, the work is um, happening so that their voices are welcome and they were choosing works that represent a broader swath of the community so that people feel like they can come back, come to the theater. Mm -hmm. And then along with the poignancy and the truth and the challenge of drama, there can be the surprise of laughter and comedy that bring you to some of the same places, right? And maybe with a different sense of openness. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can find a way to balance that, um, we're going to continue to accelerate the work. Michael, you are playing uh, a uh, the most conservative, uh, the uh, loudest voice of conservative America. I would say uh, active between about 1960-ish to mm -hmm. about 1990-ish, so for about 30 years. Yeah, 30 plus years. William F. Buckley. Yeah. Probably one of the longest running single moderator shows. Firing line. Produced, yeah, yeah. So how are you feeling about playing this guy who, you know, uh, for good or for bad, was a uh, smart and articulate voice for a variety of topics and um, represented a significant portion of the United States mm -hmm. uh, citizenry? How's it, how's it going on this uh, exploration? It's always interesting to delve into a character. So when that character is a real person, you don't want to offend, you don't want to misrepresent, but you also want to be truth-telling. Mm -hmm. So you want that person, Mr. Buckley, to be represented on how and who he was at the time. 
So it has been challenging to one, not be just angry and rip the paper up because of the dialogue and the disrespect mm -hmm. that his, right. his words often take. So you work through making sure that the meaning of what I'm going to say is represented appropriately for the time and for the debate so that it gets proper response because the audience needs to see what he actually was trying to convey. And in 1965, our world was very different, but yet very same. Mm -hmm. And because of his education, because of his silver spoon upbringing, I think that he just misrepresented many of the aspects of what his message should have been and trying to convey because he had no relevance to the other end of the population. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I think he kind of hid behind his capacity for language uh, and his vocabulary and his bombastic nature um, to sometimes try to slide beyond the meaning of what he was trying to say. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes, he pontificated quite well <laughs> in the English language to mm -hmm. try to cover up where he could very easily have made one sentence. As in this debate, there is one page, which is one sentence. Oh, my God. So there's a lot of commas. Oh, my God. And so it makes it very difficult to try to express that meaning yeah. and try to convey what he's really trying to say. But it's the challenge. Well, it's the challenge before us. And he, as you say, he's alive or a historic, he's not alive, but as a historic character. Right. Remarkable. Right. Remarkable guy in the respects yeah. of his education. Obviously not stupid. Right. And his education, not only growing up in New York with his family, I think he was one of seven kids, six kids, seven kids, eight kids. And all of them very smart, educated, obviously. Uh, but yet silver spooned. So he had the best of everything. Yep. And his perspective on the rest of society has to be tainted because of that silver spoon upbringing. So this uh, debate topic, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. So that in this debate style was a statement made and then each of the debaters would argue pro and con for this uh, statement. So the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, circa 1965. Eric, what do you think the American dream was in 1965? And do you think it's changed? I think the question would have to be, what, what was the Ameri who was the American dream for when you asked, like, who are we talking about? Are we talking about African-Americans? Are we talking about white folks? Are we talking about Native Americans? Um, I think because whoever, whatever group you're asking that question to, you're going to get a different response, mm -hmm. right? And it's so typical to the influence of white America on our language, our theory, mm. the kind mm -hmm. of questions we would ask. This completely ignores and, forgive me, whitewashes the fact that race would influence how you might answer that question. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. 
And so as this is suggesting the American dream on the back of the American Negro, something like that. Um, at the expense. At the, at the expense, expense yep. of the American mm -hmm, Negro. Mm -hmm. um, it immediately sets up a construct mm -hmm. <laughs> that um, ignores the the base relationship of racism and systemic racism in the United States. It's trying to get at it through the other part of it by mm -hmm. at the expense of, yes. but the assumption of the American dream starts right there mm -hmm. with a kind of uh, ignorance. Yeah, James Baldwin says in the speech, it's a question that's hideously loaded, <laughs> right? And that uh -huh. it depends on your point of view, right? So he's saying, Baldwin picked up exactly what you're talking about, that this, we can't ask its blanket question. It depends on who you are and what your location is, social location is in your race um, in order to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, how about you? What do you, when you think about Buckley and when you think about separately you mm -hmm. approaching this character, what do you think about this question of the American dream and uh, what is it? Well, the United States obviously was founded on the aspect of bringing immigration to the United States, giving people opportunities that they didn't have maybe where they lived before. Mm -hmm. But through the generations, whether it be the Irish in New York held at a certain level when they were first immigrating to the slaves that were brought over, the American dream, as Eric indicated, was there an American dream for those immigrants? other than to maybe try to bring a different lifestyle outside of where they were before. In the respects of the African-American, were they forced to come over here? It wasn't an American dream option for them. It was survival for them. And so Buckley, in his approach to the American dream in this debate, really consciously makes it their problem to bring themselves up by their bootstraps. And he completely ignores the aspect of how our society is opening themselves up to these other immigrants, to these other races, and really doesn't give them the time of day because the American dream is for the white Americans and the capitalistic <clears throat> vision of those white Catholic Americans. And he makes it quite clear that even though he might want more equality, it's not going to be at the expense of capitalism in the United States and at the expense of the conservative religious beliefs of the time. And that despite being born with a silver spoon in his mouth, equity is, some, is a place that everybody is co-equal at. He doesn't see that there's an equity difference from how he can start his forward progress as a human to Baldwin's forward progress as a human. He sees them as co-equal and no, it's about you and your... Believing that everyone starts at the same level. Right, right. Not to exist in this right. mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Buckley, um, Baldwin, he, he, he references this in the speech um, when he says, you know... Um, we're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. 
is what Baldwin said. But, you know, I'm guessing what he meant was made and ruled by white men mm-hmm. and that there are structures in place that prevent everyone from having equal access to that dream. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And Buckley doesn't get that at all. No. Or, or at least he, he may get it, but he's not going to He's not going to sacrifice. It. He's not going to admit it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know. Right. So um, both of you have been involved in um, big cast shows. Michael, mm-hmm. you were just working with us this last fall in a cast of thousands <laughs> uh, for uh, the last Iscariot. days of Judas Iscariot. Uh, and thank you for that because that was a wonderful show. Mm-hmm. Really great. Um, and Eric, you've been in big cast programs as well. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Here you are, two actors. What's the difference in uh, how this little project, which we're kind of thinking of as chamber theater, um, what's the difference for you as performers and your preparation uh, between these massive uh, Cecil B. DeMille programs (laughs) and uh, this? Um, I think for me, um, the first thing that's apparent when you are in a big show versus a very small show like this one or Art or Thurgood is the burden of the actor's job, um, meaning that the burden of the the pace, the thrust, the um, dramatic arc Ways is really rests on your shoulders, whereas in big shows, it's dispersed among other people. It's also a very lonely experience. When I did Thurgood, I found it was really lonely to not, to not have anyone around me to bounce off of. Um, so, literally, and no you one. won't have hold, much hold, in this one either. Hold your hand, yeah, <laughs> right. right. Um, and you don't think about that. Just like, you know, when I took on Thurgood, I thought, well, this is so exciting to be able to do this. And then I realized there's nobody to talk to about this experience I'm having. <laughs> very isolating. Yeah, very right. isolating. Well, in this piece, Michael, as you were just intimating, you don't really talk to each other in this piece, right? So We've used the device the- as when the House within the regional debate would ask a question, it is now going to be covered by Baldwin so that we can have those questions and answers Mm-hmm. But it is something just very isolating because it's 15 to 23 minutes for each of us to do our monologues, basically. Right. Now we're sitting in the same room, mm-hmm. sitting in this intimate room. So that is one interesting feature of a small show. And the where we're going to be producing this is in a small space. So that brings its own energy. But to me, in preparation as an actor for this character... Even though it's a big show, our responsibility is the same. The interaction of the audience, making sure that our character is being true to itself, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to convey with our fellow actors. So our antagonism, even though it may not be voiced, Mm. we're going to be sitting next to one another and hopefully giving each other the energy to bring that to the table. This is... uh especially from 1965, but even today, this is a, a political experience mm-hmm. for the audience and for you as actors. And Baldwin describes how black Americans uh, felt betrayed by and have distrust towards American politicians. How does this relate 
to what is seen in today's civic engagement and particularly in the voter turnout and the engagement of black Americans. You have thoughts about that? I mean, I think what is still relevant now is the the legacy of the betrayal, the history of the betrayal, and the legacy of the betrayal up until today. And I think that it's reflected um, in the way people engage with the political um, endeavor in this country vis-a-vis -vis how people feel that the that their engagement matters, right? To the extent that someone feels betrayed and insignificant, then what's the point in engaging? Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts? Nothing specific other than just uh, Eric expressed it quite well. And it's very interesting to always see where that betrayal comes from. Yeah. And is it through a voice of honesty, integrity, or is it through just a voice of wanting to get ahead? Yeah. And so that's where that honesty, dishonesty, not being fully engaged because of their own endeavors and their own goals towards the American dream. But yet we see so much hypocrisy in those voices that it's hard to really engage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, my take is that it's super hard to reconcile, uh, even say, watching the uh, reception of the 1492 project, I think that's what it's called, uh, from the New York Times. Is that what it was called? Uh, 1619. 1619, sorry. Just 1492 would be a different racist <laughs> right. problem. Yeah. Um, then we'll deal with that next fall in the play <laughs> right. that we're going to do. Sorry. 1619 project. Got my deck, get my centuries mixed. Um, the reception of that by the American right, by the uh, hardcore uh, white supremacy voices in this country, it is hard to reconcile that with the history of 1619, the history that policing in the United States emerged from uh, slavery as slave catchers. That was the basis mm -hmm. of policing. We did not have policing in this country prior to that mm -hmm. period, right? And uh, Jim Crow and lynching and on and on and on, all the way through, gaining political traction in the 1950s and mm -hmm. 60s and 70s, and yet not a full reconciliation of that history. More that, look, we did the work. We did that in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Check. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. Yeah, We got it. You got it. You got your voice. We so had that, a black president. Yeah, we had a black president. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have police shooting and choking and mm -hmm. killing uh, black men and uh, women and uh, white people chasing the black jogger down in a pickup truck and shooting him. I mean, you cannot reconcile the actions that are still present in, in this country and the racism that is still present in, that, in this country and assume that American politics and the representation that should be happening, meanwhile, we're getting voting rights up, turned upside down, et cetera, et cetera. The representation that we're promising black Americans have access to is the 
is a good enough solution to all of the systemic racism that's going on. I'm sorry, that was a bit of a soapbox, but that's what I think part of this play is about. Yeah, I mean, going back to Baldwin's words again, he says, what one asks the American people to do for all our sake is to simply accept our history. That's it. That's it. And unfortunately, we now have politicians trying to start history at 1970. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Escaping anything that we should be learning from through our history. What is so embarrassing about not wanting to learn where we came from and how to improve ourselves? Right. What's the difficulty there? Somehow the Germans have done this as a culture and can hold the incongruity of that between generations and still hold it, protect the values and the rights uh, of all people and not feel like they are sacrificing something by speaking the truth. Agreed. Right, so why haven't we learned that? Because we had chattel slavery. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. People right. were property. Right. Yeah. About eight or nine, ten years ago, I uh, saw 12 Years a Slave. Mm. And the next morning uh, on National Public Radio, I heard the story of a Remembrance of Crystal Nacht which mm -hmm. uh, is the mm -hmm. breaking of the windows and mm -hmm. the attacks on the Jews in about 1937. The remembrance that uh, Germans do in uh, every year is that there are these brass medallions embedded in different streets and plazas around mm. Germany to remember that moment. And now, today, Germans get on their hands and knees and they polish those medallions every single year. And I asked in a uh, letter to the editor in the uh, Tacoma News Tribune, why don't we have a, a remembrance that gives the opportunity for whomever might want to reconcile to get down on their hands and knees and polish a medallion or something like that. And as you just said, recognize the history and the experience of black people. The amount of hate that I got back from that uh, letter to the editor was astounding to me. Mm -hmm. One, uh, that I couldn't possibly be serious about making a uh, connection and relationship between the Holocaust and slavery. And two, that we didn't know anybody anything. That is still so present and so alive. I th and therefore, <laughs> I think we have uh, a reason to be presenting plays and stories like this, to be convening community conversation in the manner that we are. So, yeah. I'm really looking forward to um, the community response to the piece today. Um, and I'm so grateful that we're having a talk back yes. to allow for that. So let's talk about that. Um, yeah, we <clears throat> wanted to give the audience an opportunity to reflect on all the things that we've just been talking about. And so we will have a post-show facilitator 
and a dialogue opportunity with the audience. Mm -hmm. Whatever's on their mind and host and hold it as a respectful and um, honoring crucible of dialogue and learning uh, for everybody. So I hope that people will come out and engage in all of that and uh, and show up with their whole selves and, and stay present and talk about whatever's on their mind. And it'll be a safe space. So. Mm -hmm. I hope so too. I mean, again, I think that, you know, Baldwin's words um, literally could be written today. And so I'm just really interested to hear for those who have, are going to be hearing those words for the first time, how it lands for them. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, Buckley's words are still written today. Right. By so, so many. Very true. That just hold back the very advancements that we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to thank our interns because they've added some questions and topics today. And one of them was, do we think this kind of a debate could occur today? I do think the debate could occur today, except that we're so polarized um, that I don't know how it could be a reasoned debate without it sort of devolving. I mean, you just look at the State of the Union last week, and that sort of tells you the story. Right. People <laughs> shouting from the... Yeah. Well, it would still be a different debate today, even though it's similar. But in 65... Here we're dealing with just the beginnings of equality. I mean, blacks and whites couldn't marry yet. Mm -hmm. You have just some freedoms just barely being given, but not necessarily found to fruition, right? Oh, we've given them those these rights now. Everything should be fine. That's when it kind of started. Right. Uh, for Baldwin to come back since he lived in Europe, coming back for what, those nine years, 10 years beforehand, and really being such a great participant in that voice, but yet still every year coming up against the same battering ram of why should you be entitled to those things that I'm not willing to give up yet? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult discussion that is today but yet in 65, I think even more so in Buckley's viewpoint because it is coming from such an ignorant time period. Yeah. So we don't have that history from 65 to now mm -hmm. to see where things have grown, things have not grown, things have expanded, acceptances, non-acceptances. So there would be, I think, a little bit more intellectual knowledge about that history from 65 to now, but yet we seem to be in the same similar spot. Yeah, quite polarized mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. yeah. I have to wonder if, um, I, I mean, I'm sure that we could find a, 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 a debater who could uh, stand in for the kind of representation that James Baldwin brought, and I'm sure that we could find a debater sadly, who would uh, be able to stand in for William F. Buckley. Uh, so I know that we can, we could imagine a debate like that. How it lands on the audience, mm -hmm. I think, is what has changed the most. And what levels of tolerance and what levels of decorum, because, oh my goodness, 
the uh, decorum that is maybe suffocating the debate between Baldwin mm. and Buckley is serious. But our levels of decorum, as you just stated about the <laughs> State of the Union this last week, um, uh, are not as uh, uh, screwed down, right? And I just wonder how that would influence a contemporary debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like, you know, in intellectual circles and um, in the academy, those conversations would happen. But in a sort of a broader mainstream way, I don't, I just... There would be no effect, right? Yeah. It, it wouldn't land the same way. Yeah. It's the smaller versions, much mm -hmm. like we're discussing now in the theaters, within the play selections. If we yeah. can bring some voice, yes. that's mm -hmm. where it can be noticed. That's yeah. where it can be understood. But like in the big picture, yeah. you know, politically. Yeah. I'm just going to drive people to their corners. Right. It, yeah. right. Yeah, the polarity, as Eric stated, is becoming more and more dominant. Right. Well... I want this community to know that they are invited to come and hold the center of a debate and a reenactment and also consideration of where are we today and how can we better perfect an American dream that is inclusive and recognizing the history, the suffering, and the potential of pluralism and uh, collaboration among all of our people in mm -hmm. a way that we never have achieved. So maybe we can dream together about what that looks like. Yes. Yeah. Here. <laughs> I thank you, Michael and Eric for your time today and, uh, all of your time, uh, working on this play. And I want to thank our director, Brett Carr, and he is also serving as a co-producer of our theater programs. He's been a great partner and collaborator for um, more than a decade. And you can come and see this program, Baldwin versus Buckley, The Debate, which runs February 23 through 26 at the Washington State History Museum on Pacific Avenue. And tickets are available at TacomaArtsLive.org. And uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Tacoma Creates and the Washington State History Museum. Also, thank you for listening and staying engaged with the work that we're doing at Tacoma Arts Live. You can find all of our recordings for past podcasts available online at TacomaArtsLive.org. Until next time, we'll see you at the theater. by On Purpose Recordings. Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.